0: Bum, bum, bum.
1: We managed to get through that entire thing without talking about Kickstarter risks and challenges. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we were so close, you blew it!
1: Yep, that's my MO. My name is Nathan Pletta. I'm a game
0: designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer.
1: I know it's risky, but I'm going to go out on a limb here. Will, what are we talking about this week?
0: Brace yourself for a challenge. This time on the Design Games Podcast, we are talking about another question from the Google Plus community, this one about risks and challenge.
1: Another super interesting topic that comes to us from the Google Plus community is from Todd Crapper, who listened to our earlier episode on success and failure, which is a couple episodes back now, early 31, 32, something like that. And he's curious to hear our thoughts and our take on creating risk and challenge, What's the fine line between fun as the successful heroes and sweating buckets by the end of the scene or adventure or fight or whatever it may be? Risk and challenge is another of those topics that I think we've edged into through multiple discussions because it kind of emerges out of lots of intersections of things that we've discussed. But looking at it as its own thing, I think is
0: certainly worth doing. Absolutely, Yeah, moving the camera angle so that we look directly at this topic can be super valuable, but I also think it's going to re- involve a lot of either references to previous commentary just to save time or uh, some redundancy. So, yeah. So, strap in.
1: Right. If I was going to preview what what we're going to say a lot, one thing would would probably be about how a lot of creating or mediating uh, risk and challenge at the table is a in the moment GM player player player
0: GM role GM role. A lot of it is playcraft. One of the challenges for example to any kind of fictional I mean, for lack of a better phrase, uh, that is broad, any kind of fictional positioning that exists mm-hmm. away from the table is very, very difficult because you have to get the audience. And I say audience, not player, because we're talking at this point now about when you're communicating with somebody you cannot see. Mm-hmm. And you're not actually in communication with them. We're not talking about players. We're talking about a creator and an audience. Right. So as a designer, when you're trying to project this out to right. that this whoever case, will receive this game. Yeah. Right. And how I'm getting there is is through the notion that all the skills that we have as designers that we inherit from, say, your authors and your movie makers and your video game designers are kind of applicable to us as designers. We, there's a lot we can learn from that, obviously, and a lot they can learn from from design. But the GM and the other players at the table will always have an advantage because they can see the faces of their audience. Right. And change, essentially, the, the, the text of the fiction to respond to those faces. Yeah. And I that's why so much of it becomes Playcraft, I think.
1: As the designer of the game, you kind of set the general parameters of what is going to be challenging by some definition that you've created mm-hmm. for your game. What's challenging in a romantic space opera game is probably going to be different than what's challenging in a head-to-head dueling game. Um, like, the nature of what a challenge means to the character is, is going to be inherent to the, the the content and also the direction of your game. But once you've kind of bounded it, right, like we've kind of talked about the sandbox idea where you're trying to, you know, draw people in towards the middle, but the outer edge of that sandbox, right, that contour you can mm-hmm. control. But then at the table, all the fine-grain little knobs and dials, those are going to be controlled by the players, as a designer, what you want to do is create tools that they can use to create that fine-grained control. Um, you know, create the knobs, create the, the the switches. Or I guess you can rely on like genre a lot of the time to uh, yeah. I, I, would argue, I would argue genre is one of those tools. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone really tries to do this or necessarily argues this, but the idea of like follow the rules of the game and it will always be a sweating buckets by the end amount of tension
0: for the players right well certainly and this is one of the interesting things is is again i think that's a medium aspect of the rpg as a medium mm-hmm. because people will absolutely make that argument about something like the battle Galactica board game sure even though it won't always deliver mm-hmm. just because whatever there also there's also a rock band playing in the bar with you and there's you know whatever there's all kinds of stuff that, that can come into play but because of the conversational nature of rpgs even dread which can mm-hmm. create suspense and a sense of risk out of its jenga tower mm-hmm. can't guarantee that the player who's pulling that slab out of the tower is going to give a damn. Right, right. If they're like, I don't care if my character lives or dies. Mm-hmm. Right. If something else is, if some other aspect of the game is not firing, even the jenga aspect isn't going to bridge that final. Yeah, might not. Gap. Might yeah, might not bridge that gap. But what dread
1: does is it sets up. It sets itself up for success. Very strongly, yes. Right. If you're not familiar, uh, Dread is a game by Epidae Ravishal that uses a Jenga tower as the essentially the resolution yeah. mechanic, and you draw blocks from the tower when your characters are in danger. And if the tower falls, your character dies, or something else bad happens, kind of d- depending on the details of of the situation. So as the game progresses and the tower gets more and more holes in it, there is a very, I think, visceral, natural tension that arises right that you know aligns with the themes of the
0: you know the horror kind of game or the survival scenario or whatever you're doing with the game and and i think then the example why dread is such a, a strong example of risk and challenge as both mechanism and as playcraft is that jenga is inherently a nervous or an anxious or suspenseful game right because the goal is to not make the thing that is inevitable happen while playing jenga what dread does to be jenga plus that, that is additive to Jenga is a lot of fictional material and a, a, a fictional wraparound that is designed to add even more meaning and consequence to what happens with the Jenga tower mm-hmm. so that we will read into it. Now, if you play with a group of people that don't enact the fiction either according to the text or that just do it badly or just do it half-heartedly or just don't aren't in an agreement or alignment on how mm-hmm. what characters they care live or die that kind of stuff the jenga system still functions yes like like you're saying where there's an there's an inherent strong chance that there will still be suspense the really ma- powerful example of, of dread to me is that it is very very clear what is jenga and what is talking about jenga mm-hmm. whereas in other rpgs and story games and all kinds of related pastimes, where the conversation ends and the mechanics immediately take over are not quite so easily, you, the seam is not as visible. Right. And part of that is just because a Jenga tower is always, it's both a record and system, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I can look at it and see how it is different than it was five minutes ago, right? Dice, a number doesn't mean anything until I turn it into the fiction. Right. If I just roll a three on a D4, mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. Right. The fiction contextualizes that in a very different way than so, Jenga might get contextualized.
1: Just to take three examples of how the touch points of your system can lend themselves towards creating tension. If you're rolling dice and you're getting numbers, then there's a step of translating the numbers into what the number means. Right. Right. If you have a deck of cards and there's certain cards that when you draw a face card, everybody dies or whatever. Right. Right. Like the the, the cards are coded with some kind of meaning. As you draw through the deck and you see what you've already drawn and you know it's already in the deck, that creates tension without right. having to translate those piles of cards into something
0: else. Well, or, or the game is doing part of that for you right off the bat by right. saying face cards are death.
1: But you're still, like, tracking, like, what's in there, what's out. You still have to do, like, a process
0: right. to right. to
1: interact with it and, and kind of discover the tension. I'm kind of plotting points on a yeah, continuum yeah. here, right? Yeah. So there's dice, which can be kind of mute until... You like, okay, a three means this. And so now I'm adding this number and it means this. Mm-hmm. The cards which convey some kind of information, but you're still doing a how many of the the scary cards are still in the deck translation. And then Django, where you just look at it and see, oh, we've pulled a lot of blocks. Like I think that's farther towards the end of not needing the fictional layer to find out why that's causing tension, I guess. Like it's oh, a, I see what that's what I mean in like that visceral sense of of what is right. more in, yeah, 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 lending well, itself towards
0: creating that atmosphere. It's a little bit. It's related to where I thought you were going, which is what I was going to disagree with is about information and transparency.
1: Well, I think that's a separate. Yeah, exactly. That's an orthogonal
0: right track to that. If I'm drawing cards and I know that there's something bad in there, I literally have the information. It is in there. Right. Somewhere. Yeah. A die, it's like my, I could, might roll it a million times and it might never get the one that's going to kill me. Right. It's completely random. Right. Uh, the, the card has a certain degree of certainty mm-hmm. and the expectation that often in a deck of cards, there's an inherent, even if it is essentially nonsense, notion that whoever pulls it has a relationship to the information. You sure. can see this with dice, right? But mm-hmm. is that you're the one who pulled that ace of spades. You just got the entire ship killed. You just right. wrecked our ship on the rocks. Mm-hmm. Well, it was the next card. It wasn't like, right. yeah. or whatever.
1: Or even if it's like you drew the Ace of Spades, I'm the Spades character, so you right. killed me. Right. right. You killed me. You killed right. my Right. The deck character. didn't right. kill me.
0: Like whoever pulled that deck, and if I pulled myself, I'm like, oh, I killed myself. Right. Right. And, I mean, even if you get as, as cattywampus as to say, whoever shuffled the deck killed me. Sure, Right? But still, yeah. it has an inherent sense of meaning and, mm-hmm. and, and, and a property of, of ownership. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think, though, that's really important in that set is that if I roll dice and I get a bad number, I could go, well, whatever. So the cost to re-roll a die is very, very low. I'll just pick it up and roll it again. Mm-hmm cards are a little bit more substantive in their built-in consequences, which is, well, then, now I've got to re- regather all the cards and shuffle them. Mm-hmm. Jenga is even more so because oh, yeah. now I've got to put that damn thing back together again. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's one of those things that, that is easy to take for granted mm-hmm. and is not philosophically resonant. It's just raw practice. It's just... Which is one of the... It's honestly the, the, my least favorite thing about playing Dread. Mm-hmm. And this is such a minor thing is yeah. that I go, oh, now i got to put a Jenga well, tower back together <laughs>
1: So what we're talking about here are what in, like, the greater design, physical design world we call affordances, right? Yeah. Like, what are the attributes that these different physical sets of objects most naturally lend themselves to? So these are kind of the the, the physical or kind of information inherent uh, properties. Yeah, visible properties of these things. And again, there's all kinds. Of, you can do tokens. You can do, you know, something with with pawns. Like, there's all kinds of different things. But for the sake of this argument, cards, right. dice, this Jenga tower. So they have those physical affordances that kind of imply the amount of tension that they bring just by putting it on the table right. before you build a system around it. I think orthogonal to that is the idea of information and how much information you have and how much you don't, because that's the other yeah. key component to tension in a game, I think. And that's also, and that's very much where Playcraft comes in and perhaps some kind of metrics about what People learn at different times about what's going on. Not having all the information is one of the
0: big... I mean, that's what mysteries are built on. That's what uh, conspiracy stories are built on. It's essential to suspense. And essentially, mm -hmm. without imperfect information, there is no risk. If you know the outcome, it's not risk. Well, it's risk management. I mean, even still, there has to be some kind of unknown... If it's literally 50-50, there's still risk because I don't know what the die is going to do or what the coin is going to do, mm-hmm. right? But if it's literally open this door and we live and open that door and we die, that's not a risk. Just don't open the door. Oh, sure, sure. Right? And so that's about imperfect information. I mean, that is its yeah. most simplistic. There's only one state that is not risky and that is where you know everything sure, sure, and sure. can make a choice. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, there, and there is the right choice. Yeah. And so once you start adding in imperfect information, which is even if you just don't trust the person who told you that that door sure. will kill you. Or
1: uh, <laughs> what I was getting at was like in the game state, you would ideally have like this door kills us all. This door we all live. But if we all live, this other horrible thing—the the you know the alternate reality planet. we live explodes, one more day, <laughs> right? And then yeah, yeah. If yeah. we all die, then we save all of reality, mm-hmm. right? Then it may be thematic a thematic choice that you're making, but it's still not risky, right? Then you're just choosing. You're just making right, a trade
0: off. Now, now you're getting right. I should just say yeah, because now you're getting into dilemma territory, which yeah, is still yeah. very dramatic, mm-hmm. but is not and can be risky. Yes. Right? Risk and dilemma are on. Uh, uh, They have lots of intersections, but they are not exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like you can have a completely perfect information dilemma. Star Trek used to do this stuff on the TV shows Mm -hmm. a lot where you might say, if I do, if I take a chance, I could save everybody or more people die. If I do nothing, a small number of people die, but they die for sure. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a dilemma. And there might not be a risk. And then you add in the risk of when I take action, do I have a chance of failure? If I have no chance of failure, if I have perfect, great 24th century technology, and it's just like, well, then I just have to make a choice. It's just an ugly choice. But you can now we can start seeing how these different dials interacting similar to the way that information affordances behave. These are completely dramatic, almost essentially a dilemma is like a set of dramatic affordances, which is that the attributes of option B are do nothing and five people will be crushed by the trolley problem. And so there's suspense to the audience and there's suspense even to the people making the decisions and there's suspense if you're on the ground and you're Mm -hmm. one of the five people right when you see, for example, the Heights movie or the con movie, when you have the con game movie and the movie, as we say, doesn't play fair or music scare quotes here, yeah. plays fair or doesn't play fair. A great movie about con artists is suspenseful for the audience and a challenge for the audience because the question is, can you see what we're up to? Right. And if the notion is that I can show you in one scene, skip a thing, but you can surmise what happened. Or I say, for example, at the end of the movie, I reveal, and by the way, this guy can literally teleport. He could from day one. I didn't tell you there was magic in this universe. You could, well, that's cheating. I didn't know that was possible. Mm-hmm. I thought this was set in Vichy, France, and the teleporting was not possible. If you take that in fixed media, the notion of playing fair, which is, do I have enough information to make intelligent decisions and therefore derive suspense? If something is is not random but appears random, then the person to whom it appears random will not be experiencing the suspense that you might want them experiencing, right? A lot of RPGs can be suspenseful for the players, but not the GM. And the best of them are suspenseful for everybody and potentially in different ways. Mm -hmm. Fixed media is not suspenseful generally for the creator because they know how it's working. They've read the whole script already. Mm -hmm. Now, if you take that in its simplest form of playing fair... And then as soon as you take the lid off it and take it to gaming, and it's smallest, it's a wide lane where the players can can change lanes throughout the narrative. Mm-hmm. And at its best, it's a giant sandbox where the players have lots of freedom, but no matter what direction they go, no matter what they do, they will find interesting, satisfying things to surprise them in ways that are fair game. That's where the challenge and reward in a lot of ways of the design comes from. But by taking it down to its narrowest fixed medium, you can kind of see where a lot of the language comes from, what we mean by playing fair.
1: Mm-hmm. You're never going to get the person who who isn't interested in playing the game to play the game, right? I right. think we can set
0: aside the, 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 the yeah. people
1: that, you know, no matter how dramatic and tense the situation gets, they're like... Elves are stupid. There's, right. Yeah,
0: there's absolutely a whole category in which the mechanics for the game are not going to convince people to care. Right. The statement that we use a game playwright is you can't convince somebody who's not having fun that they are. Right. If they just don't find this fun, even mm-hmm. the best RPG is not going to convince somebody that RPGs are the right way to deal with this if mm-hmm. they ju- if they've already made up their mind about
1: it. Or similarly, if you just don't like the Battlestar Galactica board game, right. you're never going to feel tension during it because you're just saying they're going like, okay, I'm hanging out with these people. This is what they wanted to
0: do. If your primary source of tension is just when will this end? Right. You came to the game with a different priority list. Right. Yeah.
1: So let's, So setting that aside, right, the idea of building your game such that you're, you're giving the, the players the best chance to feel an appropriate level of challenge for what they're doing, and then for the idea of taking risks and the tension inherent in making decisions, that's a question that we grapple with as, as game designers.
0: When we get to the question of risk and challenge or risk and suspense— Versus just risk. Right. Or what have you. Yeah. The notion is that at any given moment, like if you've got somebody deep inside the fiction, Mm -hmm. but they really want to know about the outcomes. Yes. The mechanics have an easier job. They don't have an automatic job. Mm. They can still fail you. But this is one of the reasons why I think it's important, especially in RPGs, to have a couple of different tools mm-hmm. in any given RPG, or at least as a GM, even if you're kind of sometimes borrowing an R- a tool from one RPG and bringing it into another one on the spot to be like, I need to pay off what we're doing, or I need to create suspense. Imagine a game where the, that says when you see fear in the player's eyes, do this.
1: That's a move in
0: right. Bluebeard's Bride. Right. How does the game get you to that point? In that game, it gets
1: you to that point by the the GM crafting rooms with horrible enough content in them that they reach out and get you on the player level. And and a
0: variety of use, right? That they're, yes. the, Because it's number of rooms. It's not like There's every a number of room is just the same kind of flavor. Right.
1: There's yeah. a number of rooms and also what's going to get you, you know, the, the word squick, right, is kind of... Yeah a good shorthand for it. I think the game does a really good job of creating like a safe space where that is an okay thing to experience, yeah, right? Yeah, cool. But yeah, like so if something, if whatever, you really can't handle spiders or something and spiders come up in a room and you are at the table, and you go like, uh, gross. Like, uh, spiders. That's a move. When, when you tremble in fear, I think is how it's phrased, and that's a, a mechanical move that triggers. And in my experience, it doesn't necessarily come up for every person. Sure. Also because some people are not demonstrative about that. Right. So, like, you might not see it, even if they are feeling that. The game gives the GM tools to create horrible scenarios. Right. And then leans on the GM to fill them with enough fictional, yes. emotional content that draws the players in that it then reaches back to the mechanic level and says, oh, and then when they're squicked
0: out, here's the move. Right. And that's, the, that, that's why in this topic of risk and suspense and challenge and sweating buckets and not sweating buckets, so much of it is dependent on on the fiction, both pre-designed and in the moment. Mm -hmm. It's it's design and it's execution. This is why I feel like it's important to have multiple different tools and mechanics that activate on certain inputs. Uh, And this is an issue that I do have with Powered by the Apocalypse games, not in philosophy, but very often in execution or with arguments that suggest that GM advice is bogus. We see games which are, say, something like, when somebody is uh, is afraid to proceed or when somebody is sad over the loss of a character, these kinds of triggers, Sure, right? yeah. I'm, I'm using very broad examples, but these kind of triggers. But you don't give the players, including the GM or the MC tools to arrive at those states, right? right. And if those tools okay. might be called advice by some people, which is what happens when the tools are entirely fictional, sometimes they get labeled advice. When I think for me, for example, advice yeah. is shorthand for bad advice. Good advice is called something else. But is that when that happens, it's often to me an example that the game needs to be able to say, hey, so describe this NPC, this person who wants the same thing the players want and will do anything to get it. Mm-hmm. If the players don't have a reaction to that character, then that that NPC can go through revelation and say this or say that, Yeah. right? So that you have multiple things to to say to get to that point,
1: I think so. Thinking about like the journey through learning game design or, or fulfilling yourself as a game designer, one path that I feel like is resonant with me. And you tell me, tell me what you think about this. Cool. Is you kind of start with like here are some cool mechanics here's a cool fictional space here's a cool idea you know for a game and you basically design mechanics that do things and then in play kind of what happens after people meddle with the mechanics is kind of just the rest of play right right moving further along and after playing more reflecting on your experiences you're like okay what what fulfills the promise of this cool game idea is when these things happen So you kind of design, like you're saying, like when these things happen, here's how to capitalize on it. Here's how to turn it into more cool stuff. Mm -hmm. Here's where to go from this point because that's realizing the promise, right? And so you have your mechanics that do stuff and then you have, this layer of whether it's mechanics or, you know, fictional guidance or whatever it is that, that kicks in and says, once you've gotten to this stage, here's how to make it really good. Moving on from that is kind of what you're saying where you, there there is a level of, but how do I get from rolling dice and adjudicating success and failure right. to when they're betrayed by their employer? Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of implication of how to get from A to B. But if you can also design in the structure for right. getting to B without being a totally procedural kind of without it just being a
0: script yeah without it being a script because a script a script is for example in narrative design which is kind of what we're talking about right mm-hmm. now with how many different routes can we create that will get players to a space that is emotionally resonant I love the example of the, the, you will be betrayed by the employer let's say it's a game in which the, we, know, we all know that's going to happen it's in mm-hmm. the genre it's in the fiction it's in the setting the question then becomes when and why Right, mm-hmm. and if you do it too early, it's possible nobody will care. I mean, it's, and this is all subjective, right? But if you do it too early, we'll be like, well, whatever. I didn't like that guy anyway. You do it too late, and we go, wow, it took him long enough or whatever, right? Right. And so or part like of it is finding that sweet spot, and yeah. that's an example of in a, exactly. a script is one is one fixed example designed to create a specific reaction in an audience that is sat down and cannot move it, and that we're not talking. And narrative design is what mm-hmm. happens when you make a wider lane or oftentimes back to the sandbox.
1: And this gets back to our topic here because yeah. that sweet spot, that's challenge. I think this is. A good example to keep diving down so as you say too early and there hasn't been enough relationship or backstory built up between you and the employer for the betrayal to mean anything. Right. Right. It's a one note thing where it's like, oh, that guy, oh, he betrayed us. Right. So you want to get past that to some point where, where the betrayal itself means something. Right. And then if you go on too long, perhaps the characters are, are too powerful and the betrayal does not actually right. impact them in a mechanical or material sense. Very good example. Perhaps the employer has has run out the patience of the, the characters and they end up turning on him before you can, you know, do the thematically resonant (laughs) betrayal, right? Which could be a a cool story in its own right. But if the goal of the game is to go through that process, how do you determine where that sweet spot is? How do you figure out on the design level, what the most likely combination of things to tell the players, tell the GM, Mm -hmm. here's how to tell when you're in the sweet spot, right? I think that's kind of the best you can do. You can mechanize things like clocks, like countdown timers and um uh like ending a mystery and in inspectors when there's like there's a clock yeah. or there's a certain amount of dice that once you've collected it that's the end of the um, adventure but in play i found that often that's more of a threshold and less of a on-off switch
0: right yeah well, I definitely agree because with that. The, yeah. the
1: fictional content of play usually doesn't sync up exactly w- with when you get that last die right to trigger the end of the adventure right.
0: Yeah, it's a signal to, to begin an a end game or a processor right.
1: or, or to transition. Or if yeah. you're almost there, you can start the end game kind of process, trusting so that see. someone is
0: going to roll a five or a six over right. the next three or four die rolls, and that will be the last thing we need. Right. And now what we're talking about is, and this is the space that I think is really fascinating, the intersection of the mechanics and the fiction, meaning you can do it completely fictionally, because again, that's fixed media. Yeah. You can do it completely mechanically and hope that it happens, and that's a non-RP game. But in an RP space or any kind of narrative gameplay space, what we get into, I think that's really interesting, is if you teach the GM or the other players to spot the moment. I mean yeah. Essentially what's going on, right, is that you're, you're playing a press your luck game in which if you don't press your luck far enough, you didn't get the best satisfying result you could get. You're not in the sweet spot. And if you wait too long, you get a whimper instead of a bang. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's kind of a press your luck mechanic in which the, the information we don't have is who is playing and what do they care about yet? Uh, John Harper and I have talked about this using um, a metaphor where if you're trying to hit a specific target, mm-hmm. a very fine target, right? A BB gun is great. If you're trying to hit a wider target, you want a shotgun, mm-hmm. right? So you want pellets to go wide so that you have a, li- a better chance of, of hitting one of those targets. And so if you have a game in which it's like, if that threshold is incredibly granular, then you're limiting the GM's abilities, the number of GMs that will successfully be able to align it to a number of targets. If the, if the gear has only one tooth in it, yeah, it's only going to trigger in one situation. If it's a gear that's got 36 teeth in it, then there are a lot more chances for it to catch and for the next system to engage. Mm-hmm. So you, you can really get into it, like you said, the countdown clocks, because what they do is when all the players have the information, which is there are three acts in this game, or there are 36 points at stake, or when when one colonist survives, or whatever, right? These kind of pieces of information. Mm-hmm. They can create a dramatic suspense out of the inevitable approaching deadline and if it's yes. not inevitable then there's a real problem I say this both as somebody who's meddled with it in, in adventure design and success, successfully and unsuccessfully one in which you're like hey when somebody rolls a six it might not happen right for, for too long this is the this
1: gets back to um information availability yeah right the The difference between a game where um, one person has a countdown clock and no one else can see it <laughs> right. right and w- where there's one in the middle of the table where everyone can see it and it's like when this this is the colonist counter and when we lose our last colonist that's the event horizon and happens and we all get sucked in the black hole or
0: whatever. Right. Um I used to do that with the uh, aliens derived games in which it was the alien gets stronger as the player characters die because mm-hmm. they all the player char- it gets a turn essentially for each dead player and then when there's one player left that player will survive and they have the ability to kill the alien. So the most suspenseful moment is when there are two players left, right? And then that last player is just the end game in which you go, well, so now it's up to you to kill the alien. You go, well, I'm just going to blow up the whole damn ship. I'm out of here. But it's going <laughs> to win. I know it's going to work. I'd argue that the public countdown clock
1: creates the opportunity for everyone to work together to drive to the satisfying narrative right. ending right? while the private countdown clock gives that player more power over creating that ending than the others and whether they have other authority to do so is then where your design needs to kick in and like if it's you know the gm and they have a countdown clock and as it ticks down that unlocks some other resource they have to create stronger and stronger oppositions right then the other players a are trusting that they're doing it correctly or following the that rule right but also kind of have to imply how close they are to the end like wow the aliens is getting really strong like we almost killed it with a shotgun two scenes ago. But I just hit it with a laser blast, and it, it, and it just bounced out off, yeah. off of it. Because,
0: and then it's like, is this because it's been eating everyone, or is it right. just immune to lasers? I think I think you've hit the two good ones. But there's a <laughs> a spot in between them which I think is tempting, but I've yet to see done well. Which is, mm-hmm. in in your mode, everybody can see the clock, or everybody knows the clock but cannot see it right? Mm -hmm. There's a version that I think games, and it's entirely possible that we will crack this, but I can't think of a game off the top of my head that does, so maybe you can think of one, but that does the classic Hitchcock model, which is where you intercut between people eating dinner and a bomb. Mm -hmm. That -hmm. gives the audience the knowledge of both, but the people eating dinner don't realize that they're in a suspense movie, right? They don't know there's a bomb. Yeah. Okay. The players, as part of that, both collaborators and audience always need to know that the clock at least exists. (laughs) Because if you do that thing where the GM knows that there's a suspense clock in play, but the players don't, well, then that clock does not exist for five, six of the participants in the sure. game. Sure, yeah. Right? Like, and I see that in Adventure Design sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I go, the reason the suspense didn't work is because the players literally do not understand why your vampire is getting stronger.
1: Right, yeah. <laughs> I think that's where that probably falls down, right, yeah. is where there's no connection between the clock that the GM has and fictional content. Maybe if it gates fictional content, like when there's it takes lots of down, yeah. the dinosaurs get released. Right. But then I think if at the end of the game it's like, oh, you know why the dinosaurs got released? Because you guys did this, this, and this, and it ticked down my clock. Right. And that
0: can be interesting if I know going in that there is a clock right. and I don't know exactly how it works. Yeah. But if I go in and stuff starts randomly happening and then I'm told at the end yeah. that it wasn't random, I go, well, but it was on this side.
1: I think things that feel random, whether they are or not, but in, in play, if something feels random, I feel like that doesn't, that cuts against the the feeling of being challenged and, and feeling um, tension. I, right. Because yeah, if anything yeah. can happen at any time, it doesn't matter how many hit points I have.
0: Right. A rock could fall out of the sky and kill me. Right. Right. If the chance of a comet hitting me and killing my character is not based on even a D100 roll in which you rolled double zero, it's based on the whim of another player. Right. Then That's, the rock, that's not suspense. Yeah. yeah rocks fall. Exactly.
1: Everybody dies is not suspenseful. Right. Or challenging. Or not, Well, not for long. <laughs> right. Yeah, I have a reference text here that I wanted to bring up. A book called A Theory of Fun for Game Design by Rafe Koster. My, my is 2005, so came out a while ago. It's quite good because it kind of breaks down in a very simple, understandable way a lot of ideas about how like the brain works and how psychology works and, and to, to talk about why, what fun is, like where fun comes from. Right. Right? So I grabbed it because there's this idea that I think he covers pretty well about challenge and what challenge actually is. In in one line, he sums it up pretty well, which is fun comes from challenges that are always at the margin of our ability. As you get better at something, if it doesn't also scale with your ability, once you master it, it's no longer fun, right? The challenge is no longer intriguing. And he has a, this bullet list of things that create boredom, which destroys fun, right? Which kind of covers all the all the bases that I would talk about. So we'll just reference these as an appeal to authority. He's talking about fun. I'm going to talk about challenge. We'll understand that there's a lot of overlap in that diagram. Right. Yeah. But the idea is that why do we care about challenge? Because challenges are fun. Yeah. Right. So like if you understand how a game works instantly, like Tic-Tac-Toe, so that might be too easy, you know, not challenging. If something is complicated, but not interesting, if something has a lot of fiddly dynamics Lots of little tiny dice variables, say, or little tiny bonuses and penalties that kind of come out in the wash, for example. Someone might look at that and be like, I'm not interested in delving into the minutiae, where someone who, who
0: is interested in delving into the min- minutia would find that more challenging. The example that I always love is the person who finds flying or a flight simulator fun versus the person who finds, like me, a card game about flying or flight simulators fun. We may not overlap. The, the, the subject matter is interesting. Right. But- Flying a plane is too complicated for me. Mm-hmm. And the little card game that I enjoy is probably gonna be ridiculously easy and simple, simplified to the person who actually knows yeah. how to fly a plane. I, I think for RPGs we start
1: talking about abstraction, right? Yeah. When
0: things are abstracted out really far,
1: all the way out to like everything is a matter of one die roll, for example, like right. that may not be interesting. If you look at it and it's completely opaque. I do not understand how to succeed in this system with the tools available to me. It is too hard. That is not challenging. If it is unvarying, if you're doing the same thing over and over and over and essentially getting the same results too repetitive, if the variations in the game, if the mechanics of the game change too quickly, that's hard in the sense of, like, I can't understand the patterns. It's getting too hard for me too quickly. And then there's the beating the game. I, I understand everything about this game. It was fun until I understood it, and now it is too easy because I beat it.
0: Until I solved it is the way I think of it, yeah. Yeah,
1: I solved the game. So those don't necessarily map one-to-one with every dynamic in RPGs, but the basic idea of challenge is itself a sweet spot Mm -hmm. that moves as players gain more experience with the game is one that we can take to heart. And that creating challenge is a matter of presenting new and more varied things that are always on the edge of what the character's and or the players right. can assess and, and grapple with and deal with.
0: And in RPGs, a lot of that is fictional. Yeah. and a, I mean, a lot of it can be about both in the fiction and the portrayal of fiction. The example I love is, and this is where it intersects with what we've talked about, about how your game is about a thing. Mm-hmm. If your game is about the greatest swords people that ever lived, you might not make that a question of challenge. They will slay their enemies. Mm-hmm. That's not, the game has no system for that. If you can get somebody to duel you, you will beat them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now the game is about getting them to duel you, not about dueling them, mm-hmm. right, or whatever. So the question becomes both the fictional challenge and the non-fictional challenge. The fictional challenge is getting people to duel me. The non-fictional challenge is the system that resolves that, for example. Mm-hmm. But if uh, – I love in Night's Black Agents. You have uh, – which is a game about Jason Bourne versus vampires. And that's a game where it's – that synopsis already helps you buy into a certain amount of if I think vampires are great and shouldn't be slain, then I'm going to be a harder sell. But if I have a thing I can do automatically and the question is when can I do it? I can do it once. Or I have a thing that gets me more points, whatever it is. Portraying it becomes this, the challenge. How many? How do I make this fun and interesting for the other players at the table again? And that in itself only has so many, you know, rounds you can do that. That's fun. But for example, if, if I, I'm a sniper and I can take out any one target in a scene, the question is, okay, cool. How do you make that challenging? To the player and one of the ways to do that is to say you have to describe how that works in a way other than just i pull the trigger let's move on and that's what i love in a certain writing game aspect in which the challenge is not will i succeed at taking out this target but can i dramatize it in a way for the character it's not a challenge and for the player the challenge is making it fun for the other players to be around when it happens the other direction to to take that which works with that as well you can take out
1: one target once As the sniper. Right. The challenge is determining which target is worth it. And that's where. A mechanical framework may be able to help, uh, like a Nice Black Agents, like the GM kind of portray who's really worth taking down. Exactly, Because that's also all about like these cross-cutting conspiracies and who do you believe and who's working you and who... Who it, is what they seem. Right. On all that stuff. So that question actually of I can absolutely take out one target. Picking that target is a not inconsiderable amount of
0: decision-making that you might have to make in that game. And there can be a lot of great fictional input to making that decision, which is... Things like, well, look at the size of that vampire. That would be a great target. Wait a minute. This decision seems too easy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, and so you're getting given signals. Is that vampire a sham? Is that vampire a distraction? Mm -hmm. Are they trying to trick me into taking him out or whatever's going on? Right. Who knows that I can do this? Compelling again. Yeah. It makes the the reception of the fiction, the analysis and the use of the fiction that you're receiving makes that challenging. Designing
1: a system that generates a satisfying amount of challenge, reliably, is itself a challenge. Like, there are so many variables that go into it. Yeah. So, I, th- I think when you're starting down that road, relying on harder mechanical things can be a good way to start so that you at least can see where they fall down
0: in play, if they will. Kind of more specific mechanics means that it's easier to tell when they're not working. Exactly, and, and it doesn't require mm-hmm. just the right kind of player interface for it to for it to sing. Right, it's actually harder, I think, in some ways, to design a system or a mechanism that makes designing for the GM or the players of their characters and their scenarios easier. Mm-hmm. It's easier to design a system that generates a particular outcome yes. than it is to design a system that generates a wide array of satisfying outcomes and accepts a lot of inputs at the table right. to do that. And it takes a lot of practice and it's part of how we pick how a game is about what it's about and mm-hmm. why what it's about is when we realize that either our, our fictional rapper is too broad for what the mechanics can do or the mechanics are not yet living up to the fictional context or Mm. what have you
1: yeah that's a good thing through the process of revising and playtesting, you might discover that the spectrum of content that your game is addressing is too wide Mm -hmm. because when you go down paths a b c and d you get good thematic challenging tension filled results yeah but e and f just fall flat maybe your game should not be about ENF anymore.
0: In RPGs, and it's one of the reasons I think that RPGs are a great place to start this design process and to to encourage people to learn about design through RPGs is because when sometimes the mechanics are not yet where they need to be in play testing or whatnot or in the design process, not in the final product so much, but in the design process, you can hold them up in fiction. You can provide one of the legs of the stool with fiction mm-hmm. and then eventually, once you've figured out what it's going to do, what the how the machine works and if it le- lists to the left or to the right, then you can fix the machine and remove that that leg that you propped. With the, like if you say at the game table, look, everybody here, we want to rob the vault. Mm-hmm. And somebody says, what if I don't want to rob the vault? Then you're playing a different game. Just for this session, every character does not want to be each other because I don't have the PvP mechanics yet. Mm-hmm. So we're going to test the PvE mechanics, right? You can do that in the short term and have the fiction help you solve certain problems. Mm-hmm. And likewise, if you have certain fictional conceits that are not working, you can have mechanics which is, this is a game about robbing a vault. That's all the mechanics it has. If you want to go off and raise crops, you will stop playing the game. Right. Right. And they're always kind of feeding back and forth to each other that way, but RPGs have the great benefit of their medium is that there isn't a prefab mix of relationships between how much fiction and how much Mechanics there has to be. Mm. So you can kind of move that the ratio, move the mix a little bit until you get the sweet spot for your game.
1: Thank you for listening to the Design Games Podcast. If you have questions or comments for us about the Design Games Podcast, come check out our Google Plus community. You can just search for Design Games Podcast on Google Plus. There's also a link at designgamespodcast.com.
0: Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving stars or a review at your favorite podcast dispensary. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...